This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, when millions marched for justice for George Floyd, Corporate philanthropy put millions of dollars in the hands of Black Lives Matter founders. We'll explore the effect all that money had on the movement. It's not your grandmother's capitalism anymore. People now examine the role that race plays in the class conflict. And Blacks in the U.S. are less likely to battle the cops these days than two generations ago. We'll explore how that happened. But first... The movement for community control of the police is strongest in Chicago, where the Board of Aldermen is poised to put the cops under the tightest leash in the nation. Frank Chapman is executive director of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, which leads a strong community control coalition. Over the last year, we've been traveling almost at light speed. And the reason for that, quite frankly speaking, is what I call the George Floyd Rebellion that happened in uh, 2020. You know, getting the tailwinds of that rebellion, we have been able to move at a tremendous pace, first of all, in building up mass support. Our mass support base has went from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands. And, and I mean that quite literally. I'll give you the facts back in that up in a few seconds. And so the political drama heightened as well. There's been two main groups here in Chicago that's been pushing for police accountability. And one of them was a reform group called GAPA, the Grassroots Alliance for Police Accountability. And, of course, the other one was our group called the CPAC, the Civilian Police Accountability Council. And all GAPA was really was a more watered-down version of CPAC. And some of the key questions like who appoints the superintendent of police and things like that, who controls the police budget, those type of things we had a radical difference on, you know. And so what happened was the mayor, who had been supporting the other group, Grassroots Alliance of Police Accountability, she kicked them to the curb and basically took up a position that she wasn't going to really do any kind of serious reform or any kind of anything that even approached police accountability. And you might have suspected that that would ultimately be her position. Absolutely. We warned Gappa over and over again that they were sleeping with the enemy and that this type of a breakup could happen any time, at any moment, you know. And so it happened. And when it did happen, they came to us. They came to us and said, you know, let's form a united front against the mayor. And we said, well, we can't just form a united front against the mayor and that be it we got to come to an agreement on how this is going to happen. we got to come up with a unified ordinance and a movement to back it up. And so we went into about three months of negotiations. And during those three months of negotiations, we insisted that members of the city council who were supporting both sides come to those meetings, be involved in those negotiations, because there's no, there was no point in one part of the movement negotiating with another part of the movement, neither one of us having power, so we said we got to get people who have some power at the table. And so that's why we brought the aldermen in. And when they got there, it was a tough fight. 
But we finally ended up with what we call now the people's ordinance. And it's empowering communities for public safety. And while we didn't get everything that we wanted in terms of CPAC into that ordinance, what we did, we fought for an inclusion in that ordinance of a referendum that would give us everything we wanted in CPAC. And we won that fight. So the referendum is included. Now what the referendum does, it enables us to change the form of government in the city of Chicago that would take powers away from the mayor and put it in the hands of the people. Yes, I understand that CPAC, as written, was in conflict with the composition, the organization of the city government. So you think that this problem can be addressed through the referendum itself? That's the only way it can be addressed, because that's the only way it can be addressed. Only the voters. See, Chicago have what what they call a self-rule. Only the voters can make that change. We can't change it. We can't change it with an ordinance. So what we did, since only the voters can make that change, we wrote into the ordinance, the referendum, so that we can go directly to the voters and ask them for that change without having to go through a long during our petitioning process where we got to get 82,000 signatures. Of course, we have to give triple that amount because you know they're going to be throwing things at us. So in order to avoid all of that and to put this question before the people of Chicago with the backing of the majority of the members of the city council, we got a majority now in the city council. Last time I talked to you, we had 40%. Now we got over 50. How important was the endorsement of the Black Caucus? It was extremely important. Without their endorsement, we wouldn't have got over 50%. Their endorsement took us there, you know. They were the last ones to come in, and and I'm not going to knock them for it, but they came in, so we're going to applaud them for coming in. But now they came in after the Progressive Caucus and after the Phoenix Caucus and after the Socialist Caucus. Of course, the Socialist Caucus came in first. Then came the Progressive Caucus. Then the Latinx Caucus and then the Black Caucus. Yes, I remember back in 2006 when the opponents of Walmart and other big boxes thought they had won the battle, but the Black representation on the city council ultimately sided with the mayor, and that was defeated. Yep. Well, history has changed that. And like I say, I think it's because of the tailwinds we got from the George Floyd Rebellion. And also some horrible things have been happening here in Chicago, like the Anjanette Young case where we had another situation of no knock where the police broke into the wrong house and caught this woman in the shower and she was forced to stand up naked for over 45 minutes while they were doing their thing. So that case broke and the mayor tried to suppress the video in that case. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so that created a friction between many of the black women in the Black Caucus and the mayor, and also between other members of the city council who were, they were members of the Latinx Caucus that also came out against her over that issue. And then after that, the murder of Adam Tomato, a 13-year-old kid. So these things have thoroughly discredited her as being in any kind of way for any kind of police reform whatsoever. And it has put us in a position to even make our movement more massive and more demanding. And that's exactly what we've done. So you think your coalition now is in shape 
to defeat the mayor. Absolutely. And I think we're in shape to defeat her on all levels. I think we can defeat her not only in the city council, but I think we, we can defeat her politically in, in the next election. But we're not going to go there yet. But right now we're focusing on defeating her in the city council. And right now we have the numbers and we have the tailwinds to do that. Let me, let me just give you an example. Here's the unions that have come out unequivocally for, for what we're doing. CTU, SEIU Local 73, SEIU HCII, Amalgamated Transit Union, ATU, also Amalgamated Transit Local 308, the Postal Workers, National Association of Letter Carriers, Chicago Chapter of A. Philip Randolph Institute, Chicago Chapter of the Coalition of Black Trade Unions, Workers' Center for Racial Justice. Now, these are the black union leaders who signed on to a letter supporting our ordinance. They represent a combined membership of over 126,000. And in addition to this, we have 150 different community-based organizations representing memberships of, of over 100,000. So last time I talked to you, we were counting our supporters in tens of thousands. Now we're counting in hundreds of thousands of Chicago residents. There's no part of this city right now that's not buzzing with this. And what kind of timetable do you envision on the road to that referendum? By law, it has to be by 2022, the next election. Now, we'll get the ordinance passed before then. But once the ordinance passes, then, then the referendum has to be in the next election. So just getting the ordinance passed without the referendum, we got huge policy-making power. You know, we got required geographic diversity. We can hire and fire the chief administrator of COPA, which is the investigating body around any kind of police abuse in the city. And we have the power and the ability to enforce and to bring about non-police solutions where we're going to take the police out of the schools. We're going to try to prohibit as much as we possibly can the use of firearms in situations. We're definitely going to do away with racial profiling. And we're going to get social workers and people like that involved in dealing with folks that have mental challenges because they've been killing a lot of those people. Like, don't even call the police if, you de if we're dealing with a situation like that. So the whole entire way in which policing is done in the city of Chicago is going to be changed to benefit us in terms of public safety. Now, one of the frustrations of those who advocate community control of police is the resistance on the part of some folks who advocate defunding the police to embrace community control. Well, we don't have that problem here in Chicago like we do in some other parts of the this, this, this city. The defunders, they, they support us. And, uh, you know, we're part of their coalition and they're part of ours. Why? Because you can't defund the police if you don't have the power to do it. And this ordinance gives us the power to cut, that, to cut the police budget. Now we're getting concrete. Now we're getting specific. The police budget in Chicago is $1.7 billion. So cutting that like by 25% coming out the gate, for example, would be very critical in terms of uh, putting those funds someplace else in the community where they're needed. And we let the community decide that. Now, Chicago is further along in community control of police struggles than the rest of the country. But you oversaw, you chaired, along with Angela Davis, a 2019 national conference on community control of the police. And more than 20 
organizations around the country pledged to fight for community control. How's that struggle going nationwide? It's going very well, and it should continue to go on, and we're going to continue to fight for community control. Uh, as good as this ordinance is, it's not good enough. We're going to fight for further empowerment. What this does is this moves us from the position of having no power to having enough power to further empower ourselves to do the work that needs to be done. I'm very cautious about using that word model, but this can serve as a guidepost for uh, our other chapters throughout the country that are part of the National Alliance Against Race and Political Repression to fight for this. And already we're fighting for it in Dallas. We're fighting for it in, in Jacksonville, Florida. That was Frank Chapman of the National Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression, speaking from Chicago. The racial nature of capitalism is now better understood, largely thanks to a rejuvenated black liberation movement. Justin Leroy is a professor of history at the University of California at Davis and has co-authored a book titled Histories of Racial Capitalism. Dr. Leroy says the U.S. electoral system leaves the moneyed classes, the capitalists, in power after every election. Yeah, the capitalists are in power, um, but who the capitalists are looks very different. And sometimes we mistake the capitalists looking very different for someone other than capitalists being in power. And that's sort of the other component, right? We need to have the tools to recognize that, yes, it doesn't matter if the, that, that capitalist class is more diverse or comes from different places. The fact of the matter is that they're still the capitalist class, and that's the issue and the problem. Yes, the Democratic Party's capitalist class and the capitalists that are behind the current Republican Trumpist party, they seem to be in conflict with each other, but they do agree about certain things. Yeah, they do. And I think one of the most thought-provoking things of the past several years for me has been to be able to hold those two things together, right? All capitalists, all white supremacists are not the exact same thing, and we want to be able to distinguish between them and yet also really be able to clearly articulate those continuities. When the Republicans were in power, we had an explicitly extremely hawkish foreign policy. It was a kind of dark time for thinking about the possibility for any progress around Palestine, which is, of course, in the news today. And, you know, we see a lot of those continuities in foreign policy with the Democratic Party, right? The kind of giving lip service to pulling out of forever wars, giving lip service to caring about the unemployed and the poor. But when push comes to shove, we know that the policy looks very similar. But perhaps there is some kind of opening when Democrats are in power, or at least a chance to make alliances, either temporary or permanent, with certain segments of the party to push through certain issues. That, I think, remains to be seen. And some days I'm a little bit more hopeful. Oftentimes I'm very unhopeful about it. One of the aspects of the current era that I find fascinating is the readiness of capitalists to call each other fascists. Certainly that was not the case back in the previous movement of the 60s and early 70s. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really seems to me that we have maybe expanded the idea of what fascism means in a way that is imprecise and of limited usefulness. I think one of the things that we need to kind of think about is that different types of capitalists can have conflicts, different types of capitalists and capitalisms can be in conflict to see which one comes out on top, but that doesn't mean that one is not capitalist, or it doesn't mean that one is going to be be anti-capitalist. There's been a lot of recent scholarship and debate on this question of whether or not, or the extent to which the system of slavery in the U.S. South in the 19th century was capitalist. And I remember having a debate with someone who was insistent that it was not capitalist. The South was pre-capitalist, and that's the whole reason we had a civil war. Um, It was the capitalist North against the pre-capitalist South. I just thought to myself, this is the kind of silliest argument I've ever heard. There's no reason that two different types of capitalisms can't have disagreements so severe that they go to war. And I think that's sort of how we have to think about the contemporary United States, two slightly different types of capitalist parties in conflict, but both serving the agenda of capitalism and I think pushing back against them might require different tactics, but we still need to think about any kind of challenge as an anti-capitalist challenge, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats in power. Yes, in fact, it's only in recent years that some Marxists have abandoned the idea that slavery was not part of capitalism. Yeah, yeah. You know, we see a lot of that kind of race-first, class-first, sort of economic universalism-type debates recently. And I think this is sort of where learning from the people of the past is useful, from Du Bois to Rodney to Eric Williams, They are more focused on the deeply intimate relationship between racial and economic exploitation, and they insist that we can't ignore race and subsume racial justice under an economic universalist program, but you know they don't get caught up in the questions of origins. And I think they they remind us that we need to always be mindful of our historical and social context and think about how these issues are intertwined and how we are going to fight against them simultaneously rather than trying to decide if racial exploitation came first or or class exploitation came first. Yeah, it's been really discouraging to see the debate suggest that we have to kind of either take a hard line and say, economic universalism is the only answer, or kind of say racial inclusion within this capitalist system is the only answer. And losing that sense of thinking about how they articulate through one another. Back on the subject of fascism, which I think should be seen as a stage or reaction of capitalism, could there be, in fact, several fascisms? That is, a fascism embodied in the Jim Crow era in the South when it was a one-party state with all the characteristics that often are used to describe European fascism and 
an emerging kind of capitalism, all caught up in the modern technologies of control of populations. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really great point. And I've had a couple of discussions and seen some writing suggesting that the U.S. isn't a fascist state writ large, but for certain segments of the population, they experience U.S. governance as a type of fascism. And I think, yeah, that brings a couple of things to mind. The first, of course, is the question of whether thinking about mid-20th century Europe is too limited as our only model for fascism and whether or not simply comparing everything against that model is the best way to move forward. But the other one is we tend to think of racial oppression, racial violence as something that affects a sort of limited portion of the population, those who are racialized as X, Y, Z, are subject to certain types of violence. And if we can eliminate that type of violence and integrate them into some kind of democratic system, we assume that that's the trajectory of how our history works. But I think we also kind of need to think of the reverse, right? Whether or not there are circumstances where very particular forms of exclusion or violence that were once limited to a certain segment of the population can ever then become universalized and be things that everyone is subject to in different ways. And I think your question made me think of that. Are we headed in a direction where the forms of everyday political participation, the forms of exclusion from the labor market, if those forms of exclusion and violence that were once restricted to Black people, to immigrants, are becoming more and more generalized, if in fact history sort of works in some cases in the opposite way that we assume, rather than a story of kind of perpetual progress, one of unfolding violence that extends over more and more segments of the population. Capitalism is less popular today, I think, than it has ever been, even in the 30s. But the discussion about what capitalism is, is often rather shallow. Yeah, I think as someone who teaches about capitalism and, and writes about capitalism, one of the questions always is, well, what is capitalism? What does the capitalism part of racial capitalism mean? This kind of idea that unless you can define capitalism in five words or less, it's this kind of imprecise term or idea that you're just using to refer to anything that you don't like. And I think the desire for a definition is there, and it's important to define the terms we use, but also sort of as you're suggesting, sometimes that leads to a very shallow understanding of the dynamic. And I think there's a way that a lot of the most baldly exploitative or unequal aspects of capitalism are highly unpopular now. And I think that that presents an opening for uh, kind of pushing people on, you know, actually capitalism means more than having no social safety net. It means more than the gig economy. If you think that part of capitalism is bad, wait until you think about what it might mean to have state ownership of utilities. People, I find, have a lot of strange and knee-jerk assumptions about what 
capitalism means, what undoing certain aspects of capitalism means. And, you know, here in California, because of our privately owned electrical company, PG&E, they've been found to be responsible for a lot of the wildfires of the past several years, which have been extremely severe. And I think I always wish that there were more of a push to get people to think about what it would mean to nationalize or socialize those kinds of utilities and just think differently about accountability and what it would mean to take that out of the equation and not to have our electrical grid be under the control of a private corporation with absolutely zero accountability that does millions and millions of dollars in in damage. But I don't necessarily hear those things being discussed when we, we think about whether or not capitalism is less popular among a lot of people today than it has been in the recent past. And in terms of the black polity, which has been the engine of political change in the United States, those aspects of the black polity that advocate for black inclusion to the greatest extent possible within all of the institutions, including capitalist institutions in the United States, inevitably become capitalist favoring forces. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's really hard to tell someone that inclusion is bad. But I think one of the things that I always strive to convey to my students and to remember myself is that social movements fight for inclusion or rights so they can have the ability to potentially change society, not just to be part of society as it stands. And I think that's a really important distinction. The right to vote is important only to the extent that you can vote whoever, the capitalists, the imperialists, the militarists, out of power, not simply to say, well, now I have this right, I'm part of society, and society as it stands is good. And I think that's a sort of struggle that I have when discussing politics with some more liberal, less radical segments of the Black population. The idea that simply being a part of this system is enough to be meaningful or to undo the long history of anti-Black violence that we've been subject to is something I think people have, have forgotten, right? That's never what Black social movements have been fighting for, right? They were fighting for the chance to change the world, not to sort of have a seat at the table of the world as it is. And I think we kind of can't emphasize that enough. Yes, folks who say that hands that pick cotton can now pick presidents, what they're really talking about is choosing between already chosen candidates for president. Yeah, and I think we think that there's no choice. To not participate is to sort of let the worst aspects, the worst excesses of the system go forward without registering any kind of discontent. And yet participating within it never changes the outcome either. And I think it's really easy to feel discouraged at that state of affairs, but we need to remember that the only thing that has ever changed society is large-scale organizing. And that's not the type of organizing that happens at the pace of an election cycle. It's not the kind of thing that one can do 
on one's own, and it's something that takes a lot of time. If you get to a presidential election year and feel like you have no choice, I need to vote for kind of horrible person A or horrible person B, and there is nothing else, it is a reminder to us that once you let it get to that point, you don't have a good choice. That's why setting up the good choice takes years beforehand. And I think particularly right now, just after one of those electoral moments where there were a lot of discussions about people feeling forced to vote for Biden, now is the time to think about what do we do so we're not put in that position again? What are the kinds of movements we want to support to start to build the society we want that are not kind of beholden to these false electoral choices. I think the thing that's on my mind that I haven't said is just to really emphasize how malleable racial capitalism is. It's easy to kind of understand how it relies on open methods of exploitation or expropriation, things like slavery and colonialism, forced labor extraction, but being excluded from labor markets and modes of production, things like incarceration, abandonment, underdevelopment, those are also part of racial capitalism. And then something that we have talked about a little, having limited inclusion in the capitalist system is also a way that that racial capitalism functions, right? Extending financial credit, political rights to formerly excluded populations, that expands capitalism's markets and its ability to accumulate. And we can think of the 2008 subprime housing crisis as an example of that. So I just want to punctuate the vastly different contexts and ways that racial capitalism can function. Yes, racial capitalism also has great powers of seduction as well as repression. Yeah, black capitalism, right? You get yours. That was Justin Leroy speaking from the University of California at Davis. After more than 20 million people protested the killing of George Floyd and other victims of police repression last summer, corporate foundations poured millions of dollars into the accounts of Black Lives Matter founders. Has all that money eroded the revolutionary character of the movement? We put that question to Imani Wadud, an activist and doctoral student in American studies at the University of Kansas. Thank you for the question. I do not believe that corporate foundations that represent global markets and interests that are not rooted in and of themselves in communities directly related to people's well-being and sustainability of life without harm that is rendered vulnerable in many ways. I don't believe that a corporation just because they give money to social justice movements, communities, and building, that they can become partners. I believe that we live in a world that requires money. And I believe that the world that we live in right now is one that is demanding a reckoning with the way that corporations have been treating everyday people. But I think it is a faulty belief to invest in the quote-unquote goodness of corporations when our abolitionist dreams, the ways that we dream about freedom, do not involve labor. And if we are married, quote-unquote, to 
capital into corporations than trying to think outside of a life ruled by the conditions of working, of laboring, don't seem to mesh with me when I think about the history of corporations and the ways that they have mobilized their own interests because they are not individual people. Well, certainly these millions are contributed in order to guide or lure abolitionists into a reform position. Do you think they're having any success? I've become increasingly wary of visibility because I remember a year ago for many people invested in activist organizing outside of the academy, as well as people trying to mobilize their positions of power and access to funds within the academy, those invested in dismantling the carceral state and dismantling prisons and trying to create critical, forceful change to jam the way that mass incarceration has been proliferated over the last 20 years, I think that visibility is a trap. And I believe that because Black death and Black and brown people dying has become a public spectacle, it becomes impossible to ignore it. And because of the swell of people refusing to ignore what was made visible in plain sight, there was a swell of interest in combating most of the times in the United States because of the ways that our social systems are set up, we tend to not be able to imagine a world without them. So when a call for abolition, a call for actually dismantling the prison industrial complex, the carceral complex, police, for thinking outside of surveillance and top-down hierarchical quote-unquote care, I think that we've had to make concessions. And as the move towards abolition became more and more visible, the language of abolition became more commodifiable. I think that there could be some benefits to receiving money to reinvest in communities. But my problem is that it is a slippery slope when you are dealing with corporations that want to maintain power. And in order to maintain power, you have to be able to manage people. And I feel that the way that the language of abolition has been used now to do reformist work is a symptom of it becoming so visible so fast. And that the real revolutionary potential of the moment in 2020 over the summer has dissipated into small measures where reform has been made possible in some counties, in some local sites. But the overarching sweeping changes that are demanded in response to an abolitionist charge for radical change has been subverted. And it's been subverted through the money that corporations have been able to, quote unquote, reinvest into communities. And of course, communities need money. But I am very weary of the way that radical charges and radical possibilities to dismantle systems of oppression have led to small reforms that reinstate the systems that we hope to do away with. Yes, if the capitalist structure is dependent upon, needs the Mm -hmm. carceral state, needs the prison gulag and the police Mm -hmm. apparatus, then ultimately there must be a confrontation with that state, with that capitalist state. Exactly. And the way that the confrontation refuses to take place is through the funneling of funds, because that shows effort. 
And because of the way that many groups of people working on coalition, thinking about thick solidarity, thinking about ways to prioritize Black people, we tend, and when I say we, I'm not talking about an overarching, essentializing we. I'm talking about people who are invested in prison abolition, who are invested in abolition in overarching ways, in ways that are also not national but transnational. Those conversations are stopped by the flow of capital because the flow of capital and the ways that the stipulations that are placed upon groups when they receive money directs the way that they attack a problem. And I find it increasingly complicated to think about, at the same time, the repressive and the productive power of regimes of dominance and the way that their dominance is obscured when money is funneled into communities. And we've seen this historically happen, that the moment there is reform, money will be invested into a community. We saw this post-civil rights. We saw this even in the early 2000s during the heights of multiculturalism, that when money is invested into particular communities who are complaining, who are complaining in uncivil ways that are disrupting the ordinary lives of people who do not want to be disrupted. A Band-Aid fix is quick at hand, always involves large, overwhelming sums of money that are desperately needed in these communities. And so the money is taken, but the money is always taken at a cost. And the revolutionary spirit of many of these communities is squashed at the same time. And my main concern is that the swell and the fervor and the hope and the generosity that we have with each other during the summer of 2020 in some ways has been dissipated. And my only real hope is that those who are truly invested in understanding and complicating at all costs the ways that we have to refuse commodifying our movements, allowing for our movements to become commodifiable, to become resources, to be redistributed by corporations, is in some ways to refuse the gift, to refuse the offering, but that's also a tall order. And I know that prioritizing the material lives of people and communities can't live in a theoretical realm where we say, oh, just refuse the money. So thinking about activists on the ground and working with people in other spaces like the academy has been extremely helpful in helping me to determine how to prioritize at least my own local communities when we go about creating change here, for example, in Lawrence, Kansas. But thinking about an overarching universal way to refuse carceral logics has been a problem that I've seen being made manifest over the last year. The watchwords of the movement on the streets have been abolition and defunding of the police, but they're not the same thing by any means. Right, by any means. Because by defunding, you are not removing those in power. You are not disrupting the systems of hierarchy that allow for the funds to trickle in. And we are not divesting from the way that the state makes itself manifest in our daily lives. And so when we say abolish, we are saying we need to do away with and think of something new to replace with something else. And when you say reform, you are staying within a system that you are invested in maintaining. And those who are invested in abolition have already in their minds, sometimes in their hearts, in their spirits, 
already removed themselves from thinking about the state and all of its, its extremities as a safe haven. And it's that investment in the state as safe haven that is a reality for some and has never been a reality for others. And that is a major point of interest and a point of departure when I try to think about where to invest my time and how best to go about doing work. Am I wrong in concluding that you do fear a loss of revolutionary or abolitionist momentum? Yes, the revolutionary spirit. And actually, this is one of the conversations that I have been continuously engaging in with some of my friends slash colleagues, when we talk about the momentum, when we talk about our own excitement last summer, when we finally were like, if we have to have a catalyst, anything has to be more in plain sight for everyone to see that this system is one that is a losing game. It was last summer. And when we saw that through, and this is the problem, through an electoral process, like re-electing or electing a new president that wasn't blatantly racist, that wasn't blatantly embracing white supremacy. We elected others who are still just as invested in police state, who are police. And that was comforting to people. So when we saw that, we saw the ruses of liberalism rearing its head and winning, winning with rhetoric from not just liberal, but from the far left. And that it was also a warning. For me, when I saw that, I saw the loss of liberatory, revolutionary excitement, imagination, and spirit because of the disappointment of the election, not because of who won, but because of how excited people were because of that win. And the aftermath has been a slow turn towards normalcy in the most detrimental sense of the word, and a turn towards leaning into the exhaustion after a swell. And so I have been in deep conversation with two people. I had been writing a co-authored piece on Michaela Machicote and Elisa Mann Carey. And we were talking about methodologies for life. And we were talking about Christina Sharp and a charge for wake work. We were talking about long emancipation. And we were talking about what it takes to practice readiness at all costs. And we started thinking about the knowledges of our mothers, of our foremothers, and how these things that are happening to us right now, we feel that they are new, but they are not. And if there's anything that tells us about the way that capitalism wins and perpetuates itself, renders itself new, and people believe it, is if we look back over history, we look back to our mothers and we say, oh, you desegregated, you believed that segregation would work, that it would lift us up, that it would free us, and we are still in proverbial chains. And so when I talk to my mother about a revolutionary spirit, she tells me to lean on adaptation. And this is actually when I think of when I think of so many of the beautiful scholars and theorists, also organic intellectuals, when I think of Audre Lorde, I'm thinking, and when I think of Toni Morrison, I'm thinking about imagination and sustaining a revolutionary spirit and what is at stake when we do not. And this moment that we're in is one that I'm afraid of when we look to when we look back in history and we're like, oh, that's what happens when you do not maintain and sustain each other in revolutionary ways. Ways when you see someone exhausted and about to fall off, you gather people and you accompany them 
on their walk back towards revolution. And the way that productivity has made itself manifest post-COVID, especially all of us working at home, but being made to be 10 times more productive has harmed our movement building because we don't have emotional, mental, physical resources within ourselves to keep going. And so I am worried. I think your summation of my concern is accurate. I am worried at the loss of revolutionary spirit. And I am hoping that especially those of us who are no longer the working poor, who are able to defend ourselves from particular types of gender cultural attacks, especially on poor working class folks, that we reinvest our energies because we can. When I do think back to the Dylan Rodriguez essay, Abolitionist Practice of Human Being, I remember there was a point where he was talking about the long historical practice of abolition. And I remember him saying that it was founded in a Black radical genealogy, I think he said, of revolt and dissent. And when you were asking about that revolutionary spirit, I think it's the insurgency part. It's transformative matter that is produced as a result of insurgency, as a result of consistent acts of dissent spontaneous acts of dissent that kind that utilize analog modes of reaching out to each other that obscure the ways that we are surveilled through telephone through social media and i absolutely believe that there are still many people working together and even those who feel isolated that will find people to work together with who refuse to give up and are on a mission to radically reconfigure what we imagine when we think about justice, when we think about community life. That was Imani Wadud at the University of Kansas. Author, activist, and researcher Elizabeth Hinton's new book, America on Fire, The Untold History of Police Violence and Black Rebellion, shows that black urban revolts have dropped off dramatically since their peak in the early 1970s. Hinton explained why in an interview with fellow activist and author Kianga Yamata-Taylor. The rebellions of the 60s are not the same thing as what we witnessed last summer, although the continued misopportunities and the continued socioeconomic inequalities that are at the root of them have remained the same. And of course, the police as intervening as the most tangible expression of these various forces of systemic racism. But in the 60s and the 70s, especially the, you know, the 68 to 72 period that I call the crucible period that is in response to the war on crime, you see rebellions in response to the policing of ordinary everyday activities, community gatherings, family barbecues, young mothers getting evicted from housing projects and the community intervening and trying to stop that people preventing their friends from getting arrested for essentially no reason and for not doing anything wrong and certainly not doing something that would be cause for arrest in a middle class or a white community. So they're in response to the policing of the everyday. You know, the decade of the 70s is a really important period of transition. I mean, one, because by the 80s, many Black Americans, certainly poor Black Americans, are worse off than they were in the 1960s. So you know, in part, this reflects the continued embrace of policing and incarceration, the ramping up of mass incarceration as a policy response mm -hmm. to manage poverty inequality. So, you know, social programs are being disinvested from 
and through the 70s and the police and prisons are becoming the thoroughly implemented social program in many of these communities. I think there are other really important developments through the 70s too that help us think about you know, why we saw that particular period of wane. And that is, of course, the rise of Black elected officials. I mean, so much of what people were responding to in the late 60s and 70s was the fact that there was no seeming political representation, no voice in the halls of power for racially marginalized groups. And of course, you know, that is not to say that, you know, representation is not a solvent and people quickly discovered that. But I think that did help to in some ways, lead to a, a period where rebellions weren't happening as frequently. And that is not to say that they're not happening at all, but not happening as frequently. And then, of course, you know, mass incarceration itself, the fact that, you know, this is a moment when we're beginning to see the imposition of harsher penalties, mandatory minimum sentences, the rise of supermax prisons makes the stakes of rebellion for many much more stark. And so it is somewhat of an in- indication that among the targeted low-income communities of color, that the kind of policing of the ordinary and the everyday over time became bitterly accepted. So that by the the 80s and the 90s, and and even today, right, the rebellions and uprisings emerge in response to exceptional incidents, more exceptional incidents of police brutality. And of course, they're not just about that one incident. They're about the buildup. (laughs) They're about subsequent incidents over time that, you know, one incident just ends up being the tipping point. And in both Miami in 1980 and Los Angeles in 1992, the rebellions emerged not in response to the killing of a young black motorist named Arthur McDuffie in Miami itself or the videotapes beating of Rodney King in, in L.A. in 1991, but the acquittal of the four, in both cases, four police officers that were involved in the violence. It was in response to the miscarriage of justice itself. Black communities waited for the trial to play out, hoping that maybe the officers would be held accountable. And in the absence of that, that's when we get the eruptions. Cincinnati in 2001, similar thing, was in response to the lack of transparency by the police and local government after a 20-year-old black man named Timothy Thomas was killed in a dark alley by a Cincinnati police officer. And he was the 15th black man to be killed within six years by the Cincinnati police, which led to the largest rebellion since Los Angeles 1992. I think one really important distinction from even the six to Timothy Thomas in 2001 and what we saw beginning with Ferguson in last summer is that the uprisings in Ferguson and in Minneapolis didn't start, you know, the, the jump off was not violent. The jump off was not throwing rocks at police officers or even beating white people or setting yeah. fires. The jump off was all of these uprisings started out as peaceful protests and vigils. And the police responded to that nonviolent again. What do you do when the police respond to nonviolence with violence? The police tear gassed crowds of people that were holding vigils for Michael Brown. The police beat people with their batons. The police sent in the armored tanks from Iraq. And people then, again, going back to self-defense, people responded by throwing bottles back at police, by burning Arby's down, by looting. But it was the police response to that nonviolent protest in the recent period that I think is really important. As Derek or Purnell, I was just in conversation with her about the book recently, and, and she kind of said it um, in some ways better than I could have. Basically, she's like, have we gotten soft? Like, the protesters have gotten more peaceful, right? But the police violence has stayed the same. 
You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.